Unfortunately, the disproportionality that exists between Black students and their white counterparts, specifically in reading, is a huge problem. Locally, right now, in the state of Nebraska, only 15% of Black students in the fourth grade are literate or reading proficiently. So 88% in the entire state of Black students are functionally illiterate or cannot meet minimum standards and expectations. And then it gets worse when they get to eighth grade. In eighth grade, it goes down to only 12% of Black eighth graders in the whole state are proficient in reading. And so that's why Black Literacy Matters has become one of the campaigns that I am championing here locally and hopefully going to branch that out nationally because Black literacy does matter. That's why Black literacy matters to me and should matter to you. Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and LaDerek Horn, the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. Well, here we are wrapping up season one. I am super excited. We've got Clarice Jackson with us. Yay! Hey, hey, Clarice. Hi. (laughs) So Clarice is, she does a lot, you guys. She does a lot. So let me just run it down for you real quick. She is the African-American commissioner of the state of Nebraska. She's the CEO and founder of Voice Advocacy Center. She's a state leader and founder of Decoding Dyslexia Nebraska. She is councilwoman of the learning community of Douglas and Sarpy County. I hope I said that right. You did. did. Okay. Okay. So let me just tell you, we know Clarice. I feel like every time we do one now, it's like, we know this person. (laughs) It happens, right? Right. But Mm -hmm. I'm going to share with you guys that if it was not for Clarice, I don't know that the Black and Dyslexic podcast would even exist. She is a friend, she is a mentor, and she had a hard conversation with me, you guys. And you know what I mean when I say that, okay? Mm -hmm. She had a hard conversation with me and was like, don't you stop. You get funding, you make it a program, and you launch it as a podcast. And that's exactly what I did. So I'm so excited. Yes, I'm so proud of both of you all. So I'm so excited to have Clarice here. So, I mean, you do so much, Clarice. Just tell us how you got started in this space of advocacy for folks with learning disabilities. Well, I think a lot of us have the same start. Mine is no different from most people, and that's my child. My daughter, Letitia, had dyslexia. We didn't know that was what it was at first, but she struggled from pre-K to fourth grade, unable to read simple two and three letter words. And I went through every suggestion that the school had for me, including special education services, and she still made no progress. And so I, it, that began the journey of finding out the why she struggled because there was nothing cognitively wrong to prevent her from doing that. And then once I found out what the why was, getting her the help she needed and then feeling compelled to help other families. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Is that when you started Voice Advocacy Center? Like, I know that there's a whole lot that goes into the how, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and you're, you're such a huge, huge advocate in the space, right? So while trying to access help for your daughter, how did you start saying, I'm going to help other people? 
like other parents, other children? Well, my experience is the main reason why I felt like I needed to, to be a resource and a help and a support to other families, because I started this journey with my daughter at 19 years of age, and I was on a fixed income, and the process almost had me without a job, because I was always having to run back and forth to the school, trying to advocate for her trying to figure out what teachers didn't know. It took me a little bit to realize that even though I was explaining and expressing and reaching out to them, to the school and the professionals to help my daughter, I began to realize they don't know how to help her. And so that that caused me to have to do a lot of researching and time on the computer and looking up um, different entities that talk about or are supposed to be experts on on literacy. And so it was just such a daunting process and a stressful one. And the knowledge gap that I needed to overcome, it took me, it took me quite a bit to do that. And I I realized that most parents are not going to one have the time to do that. But yet their, their child really needs that help. And we know that children only have one educational window to get their core things that they need. And those core things like learning to read to third grade and then reading to learn after third grade is so crucial that I said, I have to become a beacon of hope. I have to become a voice. And that's why I named my organization Voice Advocacy And I said, I need to be a voice for children who struggle with literacy due to dyslexia. And I need to be a voice for families who may be like I was in the beginning and still couldn't do what I ended up doing because it's a, it's a long process, but yet their child needed it. And I was just volunteering at first doing special education advocacy. And I thought, well, you know, they'll figure out that they need to do something with dyslexia now that I've gone through all of these channels and raised awareness around it. And then I started getting parents who said, hey, my daughter or my son, they're they're struggling. And I started seeing all the characteristics that I know dyslexia is. And I kept sending these parents back to a school system that was not prepared to offer them the help that they needed. And then I felt like I really felt like it was a God thing that he really kind of impressed upon me. You need to be the answer while we fix this broken system. Mm -hmm. And the best way to be that answer is to open up a center that screens kids for dyslexia and then provides the remediation, teaching, tutoring, whatever name you want to give it so that they can still get the help they need while we work on this system. Because if I just say, I know what your problem is, but the system is not designed or is not willing to recognize what it is, that kid is still stuck. And I couldn't wrap my mind around knowing what the issue was and the kid still being stuck. And so I needed to become an answer. So Voice Advocacy Center was birthed in 2012. Wow. Wow. So I know that that was a lot of training, right? Because there's so many elements to this. You, you've got to be a damn near a special education expert, right? And that's law. Yeah. And then the science of reading to really delve into 
the different types of dyslexia and what might work for one child versus another child, you took on a lot. I did. I did. And actually that time gap between realizing my daughter had dyslexia was 2000. And then 12 years later is when Voice Advocacy Center was birthed. Ah. So in that 12 year span, you know, I didn't know in 2000 that in 2012, I'd be opening up a center and, and providing assistance to other people. But within that 12 year span, I went to trainings on special education law and special education advocacy. And I started attending um, trainings out of state because on the East Coast, more specifically, special education law is a huge deal. In the Midwest, where I live in, in Nebraska, not so much. We really don't have very many. I could count maybe one special education attorney here that actually does special education stuff. And then me as a special education advocate. So it's very scarce. And so I had to go to the East coast where it is a normal thing and get training and, and do all that. And then I went to uh, William and Mary law school and attended the Institute of special education advocacy. I attended the first federally funded special education advocacy training program through COPA and just honed all those skills. And now fast forward, I am a part of the staff for the Institute of Special Education Advocacy at William and Mary that is held every summer in July for a week long thing. So I went from being a student to now a teacher in the particular program. And then the dyslexia thing going to, I went to Chicago, I went to Texas, I attended trainings for three weeks to learn how to, how to screen and stay in hotels. I, I had to do a lot to get to where I am at. Wow. Families with the help that they need. That is a lot. Now we don't do acronyms. We do, but you're going to tell us, I was looking around. I mean, they can't see me, but I was looking around because I know what COPA, COPA, you know, I always say it wrong, but it's it's COPA, 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 (laughs) Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Council of Parents, Advocates and Attorneys. Yes, yes. We'll have it correct in the show notes, you guys. Yes, it's a national organization of attorneys and special education advocates. And it's kind of like a network Mm -hmm. where you have that resource. And then they took it to another level and they were getting a lot of questions from advocates like, hey, we want to be more recognized as professionals in special education law, which is under IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, There's a term within that language that says that a parent can bring anyone that they want to, to an IEP meeting, which is an individualized education plan meeting. If your child is in special education, they will have those type of meetings. Those meetings are to figure out what are the services your child is going to get, how often they're going to receive them, and are they working? Are they appropriate? Are you making adequate yearly progress? And so those meetings can be intense. You definitely need to know special education law. It is its own law. And a lot of times parents don't really understand that. It's just a part of the component of school. And so they're just assuming they're attending a meeting to talk about their kid. But that particular meeting has its own law, which is IDEA. And then when it is dropped down to individual states, the states take that law and they create their interpretation of what that law is saying. So for Nebraska, it's rule 51. And in the language, it talks about 
people who have specialized knowledge that you can bring to the IEP meeting, which they call them lay advocates back then. And they, they still may say that sometimes as well. And so we, COPA wanted to take that key thing there and utilize the SEAT, which is the Special Education Advocacy Training Program. They now have a 1.0 and a 2.0. Yeah, I, I took the 1.0. I have no was, desire to take the 2.0. That was a year long uh, yeah. training and then 40 plus hour practicum. So no small feats here. I mean, it wasn't just a quick overview. I mean, I, I really went through all these things to get this information and to become as knowledgeable as I can. And so that's what that does. Yeah, so it was 1.0 was, um, was very good right? For a new, a newbie, a beginner. And, you know, they, they really do enforce like accessibility, realizing that most of the parents probably themselves have some type of LD, right? Yeah. When taking the test. So there was a portion I didn't do very well on. So they called me and she asked me the questions, right? And cause I didn't pass a, a piece of it. And she asked me the questions and I was just answering and talking and telling her all the answers. And she was like, Oh, Winifred, and you've passed. I was like, oh, <laughs> and then it, it hit me like, oh, yeah, you didn't articulate that way. You didn't do well, right, on the yeah. assessment. But it gave me a great foundation, right, mm -hmm. I, because if we're going to partner and refer parents to advocates, I want to be able to make sure that they're good advocates. So I said, I need this baseline training to give me a good foundation. But when I saw what the curriculum entailed for 2.0, I was like, you know, mm -hmm, I'm done. <laughs> Yes, it is. But, uh, you know, if this is something that you truly are going to be doing on a day to day basis and you're going to really be working with families, then I would definitely suggest that that a person do that. I mean, you want somebody that has knowledge and you want somebody that's going to represent you at these meetings in a professional manner and with knowledge that they need. You can have some horrible advocates and we all have those stories of advocates that say they're advocates and they go in, they don't know what they're talking about. They make things worse. They give specialized advocates such as myself with this expertise, a bad name, because, you know, we are not lawyers. We are not under any type of ethical standard that attorneys would be. But if a bad advocate is really bad, I mean, they can be sued. That can set precedent in uh, court cases because a special education, if it can go all the way to the Supreme Court, that IEP is a literal contract. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times parents have to take it from the school to the courtroom just to get the help they need for their, their kids. So we just need to be careful who you have and what level of expertise. So ask, okay, what is your experience? What training have you had to become or to offer this type of service to me? And what does that look like? And can I speak to, or do you have references of other families that you work with? Those are all reasonable things to ask someone that's gonna represent you in that manner. Clarice, can you talk about some of your successes? Because I met you in Portland. Jeez, I met everybody in Portland. <laughs> but, but I was stalking you on Facebook for a little while because I too was a state leader with decoding dyslexia. And then when I saw you, you were the only other black state leader. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's another one. And so I was like checking you all out on social media, on Facebook. And when we linked up in Portland, we just hugged and said hi. And it was like, we knew each other. And then yeah. you started introducing me to everybody. Like, uh -huh. Everybody and like Lederic, these were like 
it, I think his name is Michael at Microsoft who does the training yeah, yeah, and yeah. some other big wigs. So of course I'm trying to take notes and I'm trying to write it down. And only now, like I'll go back and be like, okay, I met this person before, but you know, you've been um, very successful in the, not only doing work in Nebraska, but branching out and, and doing work in other places. So, so tell us about some of those successes along that 12 year route and, you know, Give us one. I want more than one, but let's just start with the, you know, with one of the successes that you've been a part of. Well, I, I'll say this. I'm my own worst critic. So I don't feel like I know I've done some things, but there's so much more work to be done. And so I don't really look at it like that. I appreciate you saying that, but I don't look at it like that. That's just a me thing, but it takes people like you to remind me. So I appreciate that. Well, Derek, what's the school? Cause come on. This <laughs> okay. All right. I'm about to say. <laughs> 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 we said, I know that they can't see us, but we sitting here like, come on, Clary. Look, Clary, I know, she, you, know you, you know how awesome you are. <laughs> come on. You, you're just going, I appreciate the deflection and the humbleness, right, but right. well, well, I don't know if this is the first time we met, but I know the first time you and I spent like considerable time together was that you invited me to um, Phoenix Academy in yes. Omaha, in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was I was so excited <laughs> to go to Omaha, Nebraska. You were. I was like, he's excited. This OK, I, I was excited for a few reasons. One was I heard about the school. I wanted to visit the school. I'm also I'm an investment fan, a Warren Buffett fan. So I went by his office and waved. I also, <laughs> yeah. I also knew that Omaha was the birthplace of Malcolm X. So I wanted I wanted to visit the home or at least the spot where his home was, where he was born. Mm-hmm. And so um, first and it was closed. Right. And then that's right. First, and, and, and this is it, too. And, and Clarice, let me tell you, like <laughs> you have a very special place in my heart because I went there first. And everything was closed. And I was like, oh, my God, this man is like a saint in our community. Mm -hmm. You know, like it should be open all the time and this, that and the other. And and then you and I connected at the school and you made a call (laughs) and the doors open and I got a tour and. And the and the brother, what was the brother's name that took that? Leo Lewis, Leo, Leo, Leo took me on a tour of like the black community. We got soul food. Yes. Then the brother took me to the airport. I mean, it was it was amazing. It was an amazing. Yeah, I said, trip. Take care of the Derek, and he took care. And he, he absolutely did. But I went there to support Phoenix Academy, and I have been to quite a few private schools that support students with dyslexia and other learning challenges. And what I can tell you is I was immediately struck with how different Phoenix was because most of these schools are catering to a very high demographic as far as income goes. They're very expensive. They can be 40,000 plus a year in tuition. Primarily, you've got a white population of students. And Phoenix Phoenix Academy was not that, you know, it was, and I don't remember exactly what the tuition was that families were coming out of pocket, but I remember just being struck. Yeah. It's under 10. Yeah. What, like how amazingly affordable that is. And not only that, but then how diverse the student population was. And I mean, and I got to talk to the kids. Uh, We did a fundraiser. I got to talk to, you know, a bunch of the, the supporters in the community and I mean, I remember, I think I was on stage crying. You like, were, and yeah. I started crying in the audience. <laughs> it was like a moment. I was just like, Derek, did you start crying? Because 
Now yes. they're now the waterworks are gone. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was an awesome space. So I, I know you sit on their board. Yes. You know, so maybe as part of those successes, if you maybe want to talk about supporting that school and helping to create this amazing space. Definitely. Well, thank you for reminding me of that. But Phoenix is very near and dear to my heart because it is the place that my daughter found success and found that dyslexia was an obstacle, but it was not an obstacle that could not be overcome. And after years of advocating in the traditional public school setting, I ended up making the decision to take her out of there. I found the Phoenix Academy the founder at the time, she is no longer living, Hattie Clark, God rest her soul. She had her and uh, another lady named Ann McTeer, they had kind of got together and they had been hearing about children and struggling with reading. And they, they decided to create this school called the Phoenix Academy. And I went there and I saw that they had like in the past, they had like the mayor's kids there. They had more of the upper echelon people who could afford to go there. But they they were very conscious about wanting to help those who may not have the social or economic status to pay. They may not reside in West Omaha, which is not where most African-American people here locally live. And if they didn't have the funds, they still wanted to be able to offer assistance to to students. And so they started with mine because I was 19 years old at the time, like I said, and I only made $800 a month. And at that time, Phoenix Academy cost $5,000 a year. $5,000 a year may not sound like a lot to a lot of people, but when you only make an $800 a month, it's a lot. It was unaffordable to me. And she opened up the doors to Phoenix Academy and she said, You advocate for your daughter within the traditional public school because they received students from the school and the traditional public school paid for it. So she said, you try to work on that. But in the meantime, in between time, don't worry. We just want to help her. And so they let my daughter come to that school. And in one year, she went from a non-reader to a third grade reader. And I was forever grateful to them. It changed her life. It changed my life. And she went from someone who used to hit herself in the head and talk about how stupid she was to me picking her up. And she's saying, Mom, that's State Street. That's Grand Street. That's Fort Street. And I'm really not dumb. And I get it. It's like when she was taught the way she learned to read, she realized it was never me. And so for a mom to see your kid go from crying every time, every day after school, trying to do homework and calling herself stupid to feeling empowered and to seeing her self-esteem grow and enhance and her taking opportunities to read. Phoenix left a very huge impression upon me. And so many, many years later, after Patty Clark passed on, me and Patty had conversations. I said, Patty, I might one day take over this school for you. I said, because you're getting older. She was like, I would love if you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't happen, but I am on the board. And so they asked me to be on the board and they really work with a wide array of families. I think 85 percent, 85 or 90 percent of the students there are on free and reduced lunch. They have a lot of generous donors. We have, I can say, some of the best board members that you would want on a board on that particular board. And we work really hard in fundraising so that if a child comes and they don't have the money to pay, we have several avenues where they can get the assistance so that they can get the help that they need. And that's why Phoenix looks so much different 
from most of these schools. Primarily, we don't really have a lot of private schools that really address like learning disabilities. I know that they exist mostly on the East Coast, in my opinion, but Phoenix is that one here in Nebraska, and we definitely don't put up barriers for anybody that comes through those doors. So it is a very diverse melting pot of students. So you'll see a pretty good balance. I think we might even have more African-American students than we do other races, which is counter to what you normally see. It's a blessing. And that's why I support it. I will always support it. I've been on the board. I think this is my second term. They probably will have to throw me off of there. I don't care how busy (laughs) I get, but I will probably always, as long as they need me or want me, be a part of Phoenix because it is special to me and they really do care about the kids. It it absolutely is special. And if if you could tell the board and staff, I said, hello. And you guys have a sec, you have a second campus now, right? Yeah. Well, it's like the sister. Okay. So Phoenix was... Like all the things that I just said, and one of the board members, Diane Logier, she believed so heavily in what Phoenix was doing. And she kept trying to work with the traditional public school, the largest school district here locally, Omaha Public Schools. And and they were kind of listening to her about how we teach reading. But she was so passionate about what Phoenix was doing. And she knew that unfortunately the disproportionality that exists between black students and their white counterparts specifically in reading is a huge problem like locally right now in the state of nebraska only 15 percent of black students in the fourth grade are literate or are reading proficiently wow so 88 percent in the entire state of black students are functionally illiterate or cannot read or are meeting minimum standards and expectations. And then it gets worse when they get to eighth grade. In eighth grade, it goes down to only 12% of Black eighth graders in the whole state are proficient in reading. And so that's why Black Literacy Matters has become one of the campaigns that I am championing here locally and hopefully going to branch that out nationally because Black literacy does matter. And it is something that we need to highlight and become more aware of. Because tracing back to anti-literacy laws after slavery, we still see the remnants of how that is still operating and operating within our school system. So it's one thing that we know that dyslexia is this thing that prohibits reading, writing, and spelling for 15 to 20% of the population. But what I need people to understand is it's worse for Black students. They've got that barrier. Then they've got the barrier of access and resources and culturally competent teachers who understand how to teach a person of color who, who's struggling to read, to take away those false biases that exist. There's a lot of biases that exist. One of the reasons why I'm going to be running for a senator here in Nebraska, I've heard so many times down at the unicameral in the legislature, well, Black parents really don't read to their kids. That's why they they can't read. And so they have to get over all of these false narratives and all of these biases just to get to the playing ground of, is it dyslexia? Which most people, not saying this is for everybody, but for most other people who don't happen to be of the African-American persuasion, again, not all, but most, they just have to battle with, uh, well, it's dyslexia, how do we help? And that in itself is no small feat. We all know that. 
But I'm saying there's an added layer. And that's why Black literacy matters to me and should matter to you. Not you all, but those out there. Absolutely. Where is the sister school? The sister school is uh, called Nelson Mandela. And I helped create that school. There was no building. There was nothing on the grounds. Diane came to me along with the previous head of school when it, when the school was developed. And we had multiple conversations about what this looks like. How do we integrate this into North Omaha, the home of primarily most of the African-American population and what it would take to do that. So it's a tuition-free school. So no one has to pay tuition. It is designed to help those students that live in the area, but they do take some students who aren't. It is a Orton-Gillingham-based program that they use. So they use the Spalding method and they have different uh, curriculums that they've looked at that are scientifically proven to create progress. And the kids wear uniforms. They don't have to pay for anything. They keep the parents engaged. And so the parents have to volunteer time either in the classroom or an event or at an outing or whatever so that we we have parent participation in there. But it is it's a game changer. And it's it in started, Nebraska too? It's in yeah, Omaha, Nebraska. Oh. And it started out kindergarten and first grade and it's grown to fifth grade. It's been successful and I am proud to say that I was one of the founding people that helped to get it off the ground and it addresses that. And now they've even increased it some more. So now they have right next door to Nelson Mandela, they have the uh, Nelson Mandela Early Childhood Learning Center. So they take it a step further. That is amazing. That is amazing. Phoenix Academy, the the prices and and then this one, I mean, y'all know Logan goes to a private school here in Maryland. This is our second private school. And then I worked at one that was also a non-pub where the school mm-hmm. districts paid the tuition and the children went essentially for free because the school district was paying. But not no 10000 not here in Maryland. No ma'am, no ham, no Sam, no way. I mean, that is amazing. So it's doable. It can be done. You can get trained quality staff. Mm-hmm. And I think what they're working on more so now on the East Coast, there's been a really big push for teacher prep, mm-hmm. right? To get these educators trained. So when they go into public schools, they know how to teach everyone how to read. Um, yeah. So that's been a big push because that's amazing. We'll definitely yeah. have that in the show notes, you guys. Yeah, it's unique. And so sometimes the, the administration of Phoenix, they don't recognize how unique they are. So we have to remind them, like, hey, there's schools that cost forty, fifty thousand dollars, and you all are doing this, and you're doing it in a way that is cost effective, and yet you're still making the difference and changing lives. So they know it now because we've been telling them enough that they get it. Some of the board members have definitely told them that, but that's why we we support it. I will say one more thing since you guys asked me about what I would be most proud of. In 2014, I was the local NAACP education chair here, and my president of the NAACP at the time, Vicki Young, her and I were talking, and she already knew one of the initiatives that I was pushing was dyslexia and literacy and how it's more prevalent in African-American and Latino communities. And so she encouraged me to write a resolution for our local branch to make sure that we take this on in a serious way. So I did that. 
And then after I wrote that, she said, you should submit that for the national NAACP. And if you do it for the national NAACP, if it is voted upon and approved, then that will mean that every NAACP branch will take on this initiative, support it, back it, raise awareness, advocate for legislation. And so I did that. And ironically, it went to the National NAACP convention in 2014, and all the delegates had to vote, and they voted unanimously to pass it. And so it became a national resolution that has now, I'm just now seeing the fruits of it. I saw a little bit of fruit in the beginning. The Congressional Black Caucus caught that resolution and then they reached out to me and they said, hey, we want to adopt this resolution with the Congressional Black Caucus. I said, absolutely. So it became a resolution through them. And now California has really been utilizing the resolution, the NAACP there, to try to advocate on behalf of youth in in the schools there and the minorities specifically. It's just taken on a mind of its own at this point. So it's still giving life from 2014 to 2022. So Yeah, I've got to try to find them here in Maryland. I know I met, I'm not good with names, but I know I met someone when I was uh, advocating down in advocacy. What was that, 2020, before, right before the pandemic, when I emceed the um, advocacy day, right? And then I believe I know someone on the Black Caucus here mm-hmm. because I wanted some help in advocating. You know, I wanted some help we're trying to reach more families and, and I wanted to touch upon that because it's huge and it takes a community, right? A village. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, NAACP know about reading, you know, like it's the number one civil rights issue. I mean, you know, those two small things you mentioned, I mean, come on, Clarice, I had that little, you know, come on now. That's yeah. huge. And then, and, then, and then what I love is how she just slid in. Oh, I'm going to run for Senator too. <laughs> see that that was yeah. a footnote the whole i'm about to be a senator piece you know but you, did you catch the piece <laughs> before that i was like i've been to so many legislative hearings where i've heard senators who are debating whether or not they should approve a bill that impacts families children and education and they're like well yeah we know that the numbers are this when you compare white kids to black kids to Hispanic kids to all that. But part of those, a lot of that problem is because the parents don't read to their kids or the parents' language is different. Like they don't have the vocabulary to talk to their kids in a way. And I'm not saying that there isn't some validity to that, but the conversations that I've heard, not just locally, but nationally listening to people talking down at the legislation and the, and the unicamera, wherever they go, it's always a blame the parent in there right. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always, well, if your kid can't read, it's probably because you're not doing something. It's probably because you're not reading to them. It's probably because they don't have any books in the house. It's probably because your vocabulary is very low. It's probably because you work two, three jobs and and you're poor and poverty and the trauma and all of that. And yes, there's room for that. But the last time I checked, Nelson Mandela said it best, the gateway out of poverty is education. And so even if those things, those factors were true, When those kids meet you at school, even if that's true, then you are to be that opportunity where you can give them what they don't have. And the problem is 
the schools didn't have the skills to give them. The very thing that some people were saying about parents not knowing how to teach them, not working with them, is the very core problem that exists and still exists today in a lot of spaces where teachers don't know. Because we didn't even teach on dyslexia and the science of reading until we started advocating for legislation. So I know locally that didn't even happen here until 2019, where we said in a legislative bill that you need to teach teachers in colleges of education, college preparatory classes for education about dyslexia and the science of reading. Prior to that, they got three credit hours of reading, and that consisted of how do you create lesson plans? Nothing about the science of reading, how the brain processes language, how to teach about decoding and encoding and what's a digraph and what isn't, and the whole gamut. They weren't taught that. They just got to that school system, the powers that be above them, the lobbyists that pushed whatever particular Lucy Calkins three queuing mess that is not scientific, that doesn't teach kids, most kids how to read. And then it gets down to that teacher's classroom and they pick up that book and they just start reading the lesson plan. And then they figure out, huh, well, this kid's not catching it. You expect them to fit into a system that was not designed to teach them accurately. And that, to me, is one of the main problems. Clarice, that just gave me chills. The way you phrase that around how the blame that's being placed on parents, how, like, in fact, that that same sort of structure of the parents are at fault, they don't have the, the skills. We're actually, yes. where we should be pointing that at is to the school staff. Absolutely. That's that's powerful. Yeah. We, we talked to Sean, you know, his episode just dropped and he said the teachers need to be remediated. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, that's, Oh, crap. He's right. Right. Why aren't we saying that? Remediate them. Yeah, and I found that. And, you know, and, and if teachers are listening, hear us, hear us clearly. We're not blaming you for what not, you were never taught. Not at all. Not the at all. The problem yeah. is you were never taught this in college. And so you get to a classroom and you don't have the, the right tools to effectively teach. And so then you are just pushed into a system that is inaccurate and the system says, okay, this is what you do. If you have a kid that doesn't get it, try to system a couple of times through, you know, response to intervention and then send them on to special education. So that's your answers. But the real answers are, we need to empower the teachers in the colleges of education prior to the classroom. And then we need to provide space and opportunity for these teachers to really be teaching scientifically, the how to read, write, and spell. And then we would see that really wouldn't we wouldn't even have to get to special education. A lot of this is just simple, how do you effectively teach reading? And that would eliminate a lot of the special education numbers. And ironically, what's the highest special education category nationally? It's specific learning disability. And what does that encompass? Reading, writing, and comprehension, dyslexia, Yeah. And then who who makes up the majority of those kids in that category under the 13 categories under special education? African-American students disproportionately overrepresented and underrepresented, whatever way you want to look at it. 
Mm-hmm. That's where they end up. And then unfortunately, like my daughter, you put them in special education. I was that parent. I'm like, okay, well, what is special education? The definition of special education is specifically designed instruction to meet the unique needs of the child. So when I was 19 or 20 and I read that, I believed that. And I said, okay, well, let me put my daughter in here because now she's going to get the special instruction she needs that addresses her unique needs. Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) Didn't happen. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I was like, did I did I write this? Did I come up with this? This language, this meaning or did people with bigger brains than me do that? So what am I missing here? Why is she here for one year and she's made no progress? And y'all using the same program that didn't work in the regular education classroom. You're using it in the special ed classroom. You just cut it in half and then you got somebody read to her. I said, no, I'm not, I don't want my daughter to be taught like that. She's not going to be codependent on any of you. Who's going to read the driver's license test to her? Who's going to read a menu to her? Who's going to read? How's she going to go to the grocery store? How's she going to do any of that? No, she needs to be taught how to read. And that's something a lot of parents don't realize to even ask what's going to be different, right? Right. What's going to be different when that child is placed in special education. So that's huge. Wow. Yeah. And I hope that the folks who are listening, who are at our colleges and universities and who are training the next generation of educators are hearing this message that, you know, as well as, you know, our school leaders at the district level, at the building Absolutely. level, you know, and, and I don't think that it's anything, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect any less on you if you say, hey, I've got a crop of teachers who have not been totally prepared to do the job that is now going to be asked of them, particularly in an environment where inclusion is becoming more and more common and we're having more and more students with a variety of disabilities showing up in regular ed classes. Okay, there's going to need to be some sort of professional development, some sort of sort of change to how we we support the continual education of our educators so that they can really show up for all students. And this is something that, you know, and I think we're all saying here is that you make that investment not only for the kids who have dyslexia, but yes. for everybody. For right? every student, yes. Yeah. It's so imperative because I say this all the time. The curriculum, which is a multi-sensory approach to reading, writing, and spelling that is used for dyslexia will work for any student. You could use that program for any student and it'll work. And it should be the way we teach children to read, write, and spell. It's the most effective way. Instead of guessing and picture clues and all of that, how many books do we know exist in the world that have not one picture in it? So for the kids who are taught, look at the picture clues, look at the word before and after and guess and figure it out. What are they going to do when they're trying to read something that doesn't include any of that? So these are the questions that, you know, I've had to ask when people say these things, when legislators say these things, well, I mean, just go to the library, just have somebody read to you. And yes, reading to a student is great, but what's even better is when that student can read to themselves. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> mic drop. I didn't want to say that, but Lederick, you said it, so mic drop. Yeah, right there, right there, right there. So I'm coming locally and nationally, and I'm not going to stop. And I, I have two other people on this podcast who are just as dynamite as I am told I am at times. 
because it's important to us. It's beyond my child. I'm concerned about all children and I'm concerned about all families who have to deal with this. It's a very, it can be a very daunting, depressing thing. And as a parent, you know, Winifred, you're a parent on here, Derek, you experienced this, you know, it is awful. It's awful to see your child depressed, sad, you know, struggling, feeling, and then watch their self-esteem just continue to lower. And my daughter was teased at school and all the kids knew, well, Letitia can't read. And, and, and she had to go to school in that environment and she hated it. And it's just like, as a parent, you want to help your kids. You want to protect your kids. You want to figure it out for them. And, and at first I didn't know how to help her. And it really, really was a lot. It weighed on me a lot. And so I didn't want another parent to go through that. It puts a lot on the families, right? Like yeah. if you're a single mom, it's a hell of a lot on you. I, I know I've mentioned it on the podcast. I fainted. I fainted at work. I was having migraines. I, when I fainted and came to, I couldn't speak for 90 minutes, couldn't move my left side. And the neurologist was like, you're internalizing the stress because I was thinking, she got to go to one of these private schools and they 30 grand a year, 30 plus. How the hell are we going to afford it? But I was like, she's my only child. What do I do? She wasn't picking up a book. You know, she didn't want to read. You know, she, I, I just saw my little eight-year-old, just her confidence was gone. But she had just gotten valedictorian of kindergarten, <laughs> you know, and by second grade, she realized her peers were taken off. So a lot of times uh, parents don't even talk about the stress on the parents, uh, stress on marriages, right? Yeah. Because one yeah. parent believes it and the other parent doesn't. And it's always the parent that don't believe it that's neurodivergent themselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, that's funny how that is. And then the stress of, a like I said, you just talked about all these stresses on your marriage, on your body, on your emotions. And then on top of that, I was stressed out. My job was threatening to fire me because I was having to leave to go to all these different meetings all the time. Or my daughter was having a bad day and, and she needed to be picked up. And it happened a lot. And they were like, look, I understand you have that. And I was a single parent at the time, but we can't continue to allow you to keep missing this time. So it created all types of stress. Yeah, I, that's why I chose to change careers. That's when I went to be director of admissions at one of the special education schools because I found myself just zoning out in the office. I'm like, okay, I'm not, cause I'm focusing on an IEP or did mm -hmm. I read that right? Or let me go back and read that. Any little thing could trigger a conversation around special education and my mind is just focused on that. So that's why I changed careers, you know, and, and just let me put this out there. If you have a clinical diagnosis, right? You have an IEP, you may be able to use FMLA. To, what, to is, what does that stand for? Family Medical, oh, sorry, sorry. Family <laughs> Medical Leave Act. You go to yeah. your HR department. You can have intermittent FMLA. You don't have to tell them what's going on. You just say, hey, I'm going to use my FMLA so that you can attend IEP meetings or if your child, you know, needs you and you need to go to the school. So that is an option. Family Medical Leave Act. So Clarice, with all that said, you know, if if you could give one word of advice, and you've already said so much and so much of value to our audience, but one word of advice, maybe to that younger you, you know, who was that mother who was trying to figure all this out, what's the, the one piece of advice for her and, and by extension to our audience? The one piece of advice that I would give to parents is just to know that 
even though you deal with a lot of professionals from teachers to administrators to principals to superintendents, what have you, you are your child's best advocate. No one knows your child better than you. You may not know every term, everything that schools will present to you, but what you do know is your child. Trust yourself. And of course, get help, get resources, make sure that you have your ducks in a row when you go to a meeting, but know one thing, you know your child better than anybody else. And what you feel in your gut and what you see and what you experience at home with your child and what your child tells you is important and you are that voice for them. And that's what I would reassure myself at 19 when I started this. And that's what I would say to every parent out there. Be the best advocate you can. Be gracious to yourself. Make sure that you put your emotions in check because it is your child. It is going to be emotional. You're going to come out of some meetings and you're going to be in tears. You might cry in that meeting, but that doesn't mean you stop. You put those emotions in check and you turn them into advocacy and you do what you need to do to ensure that your child gets the quality education that they deserve. Thank you, Clarice. Thank you. <laughs> well, I finally you. got on here. Yes, yes. <laughs> I had to say that. My fault, but I'm here. Tune in next week, where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast, where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.